Chapter Five, Part Two of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. He had traversed the hundred yards from the old Schloss hither in a closed carriage, with his huntsman on the box. He was in mufti, as almost always, wore a buttoned-up frock coat with little satin lapels and patent leather boots on his small feet. Since his accession he had grown an imperial. His short fair hair was brushed back on each of his narrow, sunk temples. His gait was an awkward and yet indescribably distinguished strut, which gave his shoulder-blades a peculiar twist. He carried his head well back and stuck his short round underlip out, sucking gently with it against the upper one. The princess went to the threshold to meet him. He disliked hand-kissing, so he simply held out his hand with a soft, almost whispered greeting. His thin, cold hand, which looked so sensitive, and which he stretched out from his chest while keeping his forearm close to his body. Then he greeted his brother Klaus Heinrich in the same way, who had waited for him standing with heels close together in front of his chair, and said nothing further. Ditlinde talked. "'It's very nice of you to come, Albrecht. So you're feeling well?' You look splendid. Philip wishes me to tell you how sorry he is to have to be out this afternoon. Sit down, won't you, anywhere you like. Here, for instance, opposite me. That chair's a pretty comfortable one. You sat in it last time. I've made tea for us in the meantime. You'll have your milk directly. Thanks, he said quietly. I must beg pardon. I'm late. You know, the shorter the road. And then I have to lie down in the afternoon. There's no one else coming? No one else, Albrecht. At the most, Jettchen Isenschnibbe may look in for a bit, if you don't object. Oh? But I can just as well say not at home. Oh, no, pray don't. Hot milk was brought. Albrecht clasped the tall, thick, studded glass in both hands. Ah, something warm, he said. How cold it is already in these parts, and I've been frozen the whole summer in Hollerbrunn. Haven't you started the fires yet? I have. But then again the smell of the stoves upsets me. All stoves smell. Fonbul promises me central heating for the old Schloss every autumn, but it seems not to be feasible. Poor Albrecht, said Ditlinde. At this time of year you used to be already in the south, so long as father was alive. You must long for it. Your sympathy does you credit, dear Ditlinde, answered he still in a low and slightly lisping voice. But we must show that I am on the spot. I must rule the country, as you know, that's what I'm here for. Today I have been graciously pleased to allow some worthy citizen—I'm sorry I can't remember his name—to accept and wear a foreign order. Further, I have had a telegram sent to the annual meeting of the Horticultural Society, in which I assumed the honorary presidency of the Society— and pledged my word to further its efforts in every way, without really knowing what furthering I could do beyond sending the telegram, for the members are quite well capable to take care of themselves. Further, I have deigned to confirm the choice of a certain worthy fellow to be mayor of my fair city of Siebenberge, in connection with which I should like to know whether this my subject will be a better mayor from my confirmation than he would have been without it. "'Well, well, Albrecht, those are trifles,' said Ditlinde. 
I'm convinced that you've had more serious business to do. Oh, of course. I've had a talk with my Minister of Finance and Agriculture. It was time I did. Dr. Krippenreuter would have been bitterly disappointed with me if I had not summoned him once more. He went ahead in summary fashion and laid before me a conspectus of several mutually related topics at once, the harvest, the new principles for the drawing up of the budget, the reform of taxation, on which he is busy. The harvest has been a bad one, it seems. The peasants have been hit by blight and bad weather. Not only they, but Krippenreuter, too, are much concerned about it, because the tax-paying resources of the land, he says, have once more suffered contraction. Besides, there have unfortunately been disasters in more than one of the silver mines. The gear is at a standstill, says Krippenreuter. It is damaged and will cost a lot of money to repair. I listened to the whole recital with an appropriate expression on my face, and did what I could to express my grief for such a series of misfortunes. Next, I was consulted as to whether the cost of the necessary new buildings for the treasury, and for the woods, and customs, and inland revenue offices, ought to be debited to the ordinary, or the extraordinary estimates. I learnt a lot about sliding scales, and income tax, and tax on tourist traffic, and the removal of burdens from oppressed agriculture, and the imposition of burdens on the towns and on the whole I got the impression that Krippenreuter was well up in his subject. I, of course, know practically nothing about it, which Krippenreuter knows and approves, so I just said yes, yes, and of course, and many thanks, and let him run on. You speak so bitterly, Albrecht. No, I'll tell you just what struck me while Krippenreuter was holding forth to me today. There's a man living in this town— a man with small private means and a warty nose. Every child knows him and shouts high when he sees him. He is called the Hatter, for he is not quite all there. His surname he has lost long ago. He's always on the spot when there's anything going on, although his half-wittedness keeps him from playing any serious part in anything. He wears a rose in his buttonhole and carries his hat about on the end of his walking-stick. Twice a day, about the time when a train starts, he goes to the station, taps the wheels, examines the luggage, and fusses about. Then, when the guard blows his whistle, the hatter waves to the engine driver and the train starts. But the hatter deludes himself into thinking that his waving sends the train off. That's like me. I wave and the train starts but it would start without me, and my waving makes no difference. It's mere silly show. I'm sick of it. The brother and sister were silent. Ditlinda looked at her lap in an embarrassed way, and Klaus Heinrich gazed, as he tugged his little bow-shaped moustache, between her and the Grand Duke at the bright window. I can quite follow you, Albrecht, he said after a while, though it is rather cruel of you to compare yourself and us with the hatter. You see, I too understand nothing about sliding scales and taxation of tourist traffic and peat-cutting, and there is such a lot about which I know nothing, everything which is covered by the expression the misery in the world, hunger and want, and the struggle for existence, as it is called, and war and hospital horrors and all that, 
I have seen and studied not one of these, except death itself, when father died, and that too was not death as it can be, but rather it was edifying, and the whole Schloss was illuminated. And at times I feel ashamed of myself, because I have not knocked about the world. But then I tell myself that mine is not a comfortable life, not at all comfortable, although I wander on the heights of mankind, as people express it, or perhaps just because I do, and that I perhaps, in my own way, know more about the strenuousness of life, its tight-lipped countenance, if you will allow me the expression, than many a one who knows all about the sliding scales, or any other single department of life. And the upshot of that is, Albrecht, that my life is not a comfortable one. That's the upshot of everything. If you will allow me this retort, and that is how we justify ourselves. And if people cry, hi, when they see me, they must know why they do so, and my life must have some raison d'etre, although I am prevented from playing any serious part in anything, as you so admirably express it. And you're quite justified, too. You wave to order, because the people wish you to wave. And if you do not really control their wishes and aspirations, yet you express them and give them substance, and maybe that's no slight matter. Albrecht sat upright at the table. He held his thin, strangely sensitive-looking hands crossed on the table-edge in front of the tall, half-empty glass of milk, and his eyelids dropped, and he sucked his underlip against his upper. He answered quietly, "'I'm not surprised that so popular a prince as you should be contented with his lot. I, for my part, decline to express somebody else in my own person. I decline to, say, and you may think it's a case of sour grapes as much as you like. The truth is that I care for the high of the people just as little as any living soul possibly could care. I say soul, not body. The flesh is weak. There's something in one which expands at applause and contracts at cold silence. But my reason rises superior to all considerations of popularity or unpopularity. If I did succeed in being a true national representative, I know what that would amount to. A misconception of my personality. Besides, a few hand-claps from people one does not know are not worth a shrug of the shoulders. Others, you, may be inspired by the feeling of the people behind you. You must forgive me for being too matter-of-fact to feel any such mysterious feeling of happiness, and too keen on cleanliness also, if you will allow me to put it thus. That kind of happiness stinks, to my thinking. Anyhow, I'm a stranger to the people. I give them nothing. What can they give me? With you, well, that's quite different. Hundreds of thousands who are like you are grateful to you because they can recognize themselves in you. You may laugh if you like. The chief danger you run is that you submerge yourself in your popularity too readily. And yet, after all, you feel no apprehensions, although you are aware at this very moment. No, Albrecht, I don't think so. I don't think I run any such danger. Then we shall understand each other all the better. I have no penchant for strong expressions as a rule, but popularity is hogwash. It's funny, Albrecht, funny that you should use that word. The pheasants were always using it, my schoolmates, the young sprigs, you know, at the pheasantry. I know what you are. 
You're an aristocrat. That's what's the matter. Do you think so? You're wrong. I'm no aristocrat. I'm the opposite, by taste and reason. You must allow that I do not despise the highs of the crowd from arrogance, but from a propensity to humanity and goodness. Human highness is a pitiable thing, and I'm convinced that mankind ought to see that everyone behaves like a man, and a good man, to his neighbor, and does not humiliate him or cause him shame. A man must have a thick skin to be able to carry off all the flummery of highness without any feeling of shame. I am naturally rather sensitive. I cannot cope with the absurdity of my situation. Every lackey who plants himself at the door and expects me to pass him without noticing, without heeding him more than the doorposts, fills me with embarrassment. That's the way I feel towards the people. Yes, Albrecht, quite true. It's often by no means easy to keep one's countenance when one passes by a fellow like that. The lackeys. If one only did not know what frauds they are. One hears fine stories about them. What stories? Oh, one keeps one's ears open. Come, come, said Ditlinde. Don't let's worry about that. Here you are talking about ordinary things, and I had two topics noted down which I thought we might discuss this afternoon. Would you be so kind, Klaus Heinrich, as to reach me that notebook there in the blue leather on the writing-table? Many thanks. I note down in this everything I have to remember, both household matters and other things. What a blessing it is to be able to see everything down in black and white. My head is terribly weak. I can't remember things, and if I weren't tidy and didn't jot everything down, I should be done for. First of all, Albrecht, before I forget it, I wanted to remind you that you must escort Aunt Catherine at the first court on November 1st. You can't get out of it. I withdraw. The honor fell to me at the last court ball, and Aunt Catherine was terribly put out. Do you consent? Good. Then I cross out item one. Secondly, Klaus Heinrich, I wanted to ask you to make a short appearance at the Orphan Children's Bazaar on the 15th in the town hall. I am patroness and I take my duties seriously, as you see. You needn't buy anything, a pocket-comb. In short, all you need to do is show yourself for ten minutes. It's for the orphans. Will you come? You see, now I can cross another off. Thirdly, but the princess was interrupted. Fräulein von Isenschnibbe, the court lady, was announced and tripped in at once through the big drawing-room, her feather boa waving in the draught, and the brim of her huge feather hat flapping up and down. The smell of the fresh air from outside seemed to cling to her clothes. She was small, very fair, with a pointed nose, and so short-sighted that she could not see the stars. On clear evenings she would stand on her balcony and gaze at the starry heavens through opera glasses and rave about them. She wore two strong pairs of glasses, one behind the other, and screwed up her eyes and stuck her head forward as she curtsied. "'Heavens, Grand Ducal Highness!' she said. "'I didn't know. I'm disturbing you. I'm intruding. I most humbly beg pardon.' The brothers had risen, and the visitor, as she curtsied to them, was filled with confusion. As Albrecht extended his hand from his chest, keeping his forearm close to his body, her arm was stretched out almost perpendicularly, when the curtsy which she had made him had reached its lowest point. 
"'Dear Yetchen,' said Ditlinde, "'what nonsense! You are expected and welcome, and my brothers know that we call each other by our Christian names, so none of that Grand Ducal Highness, if you please. We are not in the old Schloss. Sit down and make yourself comfortable. Will you have some tea? It's still hot, and here's some candied fruits. I know you like them.' "'Yes, a thousand thanks, Ditlinde. I adore them.' And Fräulein von Isenschnibbe took a chair on the narrow side of the tea-table opposite Klaus Heinrich, with her back to the window, drew a glove off, and began peering forward to lay sweetmeats on her plate with the silver tongs. Her little bosom heaved quickly and nervously with pleasurable excitement. "'I've got some news,' she said, unable any longer to contain herself. "'News more than any reticule will hold. That is to say, it is really only one piece of news, only one, but it's so weighty that it counts for dozens.' and it is quite certain i have it on the best authority you know that i am reliable ditlinda this very evening it will be in the courier and to-morrow the whole town will be talking about it yes yetchen said the princess it must be confessed you never come with empty hands but now we're excited do tell us your news very well let me get my breath do you know ditlinda does your royal highness know does your grand ducal highness know who's coming who is coming to the spa? Who is coming for six or eight weeks to the spa hotel to drink the waters? No, said Ditlinde, but do you know, dear Jettchen? Spöllmann, said Fräulein von Isenschnibbe. Spöllmann, she said, leaned back and made as if to draw with her fingers on the table edge, but checked the movement of her hand just over the blue silk border. The brothers and sister looked doubtfully at each other. Spöllmann asked Ditlinde. "'Think a moment, Jettchen. The real Spöllmann?' "'The real one!' Her voice cracked with suppressed jubilation. "'The real one, Ditlinde, for there's only one, or rather only one whom everybody knows, and he it is whom they are expecting at the spa hotel, the great Spöllmann, the giant Spöllmann, the colossus Samuel N. Spöllmann from America.' "'But, child, what's bringing him here?' "'Really, forgive me for saying so, Ditlinde, but what a question. His yacht or some big steamer is bringing him over the sea, of course. He's on his holidays making a tour of Europe, and has expressed his intention of drinking the spa waters.' "'But is he ill, then?' "'Of course, Ditlinde. All people of his kind are ill. That's part of the business.' "'Strange,' said Klaus Heinrich. Yes, Grand Ducal Highness, it is remarkable. His kind of existence must bring that with it. For there's no doubt it's a trying existence, and not at all a comfortable one, and must wear the body out quicker than an ordinary man's life would. Most suffer in the stomach, but Spülmann suffers from stone, as everybody knows. Stone, does he? Of course, Ditlinde, you must have heard it and forgotten it. He has stone in the kidneys, if you will forgive me the horrid expression, a serious, trying illness, and I'm sure he can't get the slightest pleasure from his frantic wealth. But how in the world has he pitched upon our waters? Why, Ditlinde, that's simple. The waters are good, they're excellent, especially the Ditlinde spring, with its lithium, or whatever they call it, is admirable against gout and stone, and only waiting to be properly known and valued throughout the world. But a man like Spurlmann, you can imagine, a man like that is above names and trade-puffs, and follows his own kind. 
and so he has discovered our waters, or his physician has recommended them to him, it may be that, and bought it in the bottle, and it has done him good, and now he may think that it must do him still more good if he drinks it on the spot. They all kept silence. "'Great heavens, Albrecht,' said Ditlinde at last. Whatever one thinks of Spurlmann and his kind, and I'm not going to commit myself to an opinion, of that you may be sure, but don't you think that the man's visit to the spa may be very useful? The Grand Duke turned his head with his stiff and refined smile. Ask Fräulein von Isenschnibbe, he answered. She has doubtless already considered the question from that point of view. If your Royal Highness asks me, enormously useful— immeasurably incalculably useful that's obvious the directors are in the seventh heaven they're getting ready to decorate and illuminate the spa hotel what a recommendation what an attraction for strangers will your royal highness just consider the man is a curiosity your grand ducal highness spoke just now of his kind but there are none of his kind at most only a couple he's a leviathan a croesus People will come from miles away to see a being who has about half a million a day to spend. Gracious, said Ditlinde, taken aback. And there's dear Philip worrying about his peat beds. The first scene, the Fräulein went on, begins with two Americans hanging about the exchange for the last couple of days. Who are they? They're said to be journalists, reporters for the two big New York papers. They have preceded the Leviathan, and are telegraphing to their papers preliminary descriptions of the scenery. When he has got here they will telegraph every step he takes, just as the courier and the advertiser report about your royal highness. Albrecht bowed his thanks, with eyes downcast and underlip protruded. "'He has appropriated the prince's suite in the spa hotel,' said Yetchen, "'as provisional lodgings.' "'For himself alone?' asked Ditlinde. "'Oh, no, Ditlinde. Do you suppose he'd be coming alone? There isn't any precise information about his suite and staff, but it's quite certain that his daughter and his physician in ordinary are coming with him.' "'It annoys me, Yetchen, to hear you talking about a physician in ordinary, and the journalists, too, and the prince's suite to boot. He's not a king, after all.' "'A railway king, so far as I know,' remarked Albrecht, quietly with eyes downcast. "'Not only, or even particularly, a railway king, Royal Highness, according to what I hear. Over in America they have those great business concerns called trusts, as your Royal Highness knows, the Steel Trust, for instance, the Sugar Trust, the Petroleum Trust, the Coal, Meat, Tobacco Trusts, and goodness knows how many more,' and Samuel N. Spurlmann has a finger in nearly all these trusts, and is chief shareholder in them and managing director. That's what I believe they call them. So his business must be what is called over here a mixed-goods business. A nice sort of business, said Ditlinde. It must be a nice sort of business, for you can't persuade me, dear Yetchen, that honest work can make a man into a leviathan and a croesus. I am convinced that his riches are steeped in the blood of widows and orphans. What do you think, Albrecht? I hope so, Ditlinde. I hope so for your own and your husband's comfort. 
May be so, explained Jettchen. Yet Spülmann, our Samuel N. Spülmann, is hardly responsible for it, for he is really nothing but an heir, and may quite well not have any particular taste for his business. It was his father who really made the pile. I've read all about it, and may say that I really know the general facts. His father was a German, simply an adventurer who crossed the seas and became gold-digger. And he was lucky and made a little money through gold finds, or rather, quite a decent amount of money, and began to speculate in petroleum and steel and railways, and then in every sort of thing, and kept growing richer and richer, and when he died everything was already in full swing, and his son Samuel, who inherited the Croesus firm, really had nothing to do but to collect the princely dividends and keep growing richer and richer till he beat all records. That's the way the things have gone. And he has a daughter, has he, Yetchen? What is she like? Yes, Ditlinda, his wife is dead, but he has a daughter, Miss Spulmann, and he's bringing her with him. She's a wonderful girl from all I've read about her. He himself is a bit of a mixture, for his father married a wife from the South, Creole blood, the daughter of a German father and native mother. But Samuel, in his turn, married a German-American of half-English blood, and their daughter is now Miss Spulmann. Gracious, Jettchen, she's a creature of many colors. You may well say so, Ditlinda, and she's clever, so I've heard. She studies like a man, algebra and puzzling things of that sort. Hm, that too doesn't attract me much. But now comes the cream of the business, Ditlinda, for Miss Spurlman has a lady companion, and that lady companion is a countess, a real genuine countess, who dances attendance on her. Gracious, said Ditlinda, she ought to be ashamed of herself. No, Yetchen, my mind is made up. I'm not going to bother myself about Spurlman. I'm going to let him drink his waters and go, with his countess and his algebraical daughter, and I'm not going so much as to turn my head to look at him. He and his riches make no impression on me. What do you think, Klaus Heinrich? Klaus Heinrich looked past Jettchen's head at the bright window. Impression? he said. No, riches make no impression on me. I think, I mean, riches in the ordinary way. But it seems to me that it depends. It depends, I think, on the standard. We, too, have one or two rich people in the town here. Soap-boiler Unschlitt must be a millionaire. I often see him in his carriage. He's dreadfully fat and common. But when a man is quite ill and lonely from mere riches, maybe... An uncomfortable sort of man, anyhow, said Ditlinda, and the subject of the Spurlmanns gradually dropped. The conversation turned on family matters, the Hohenried property, and the approaching season. Shortly before seven o'clock, the Grand Duke sent for his carriage. Prince Klaus Heinrich was going, too, so they all got up and said good-bye. But while the brothers were being helped into their coats in the hall, Albrecht said, I should be obliged, Klaus Heinrich, if you would send your coachman home and would give me the pleasure of your company for a quarter of an hour longer. I've got a matter of some importance to discuss with you. I might come with you to the Hermitage, but I can't bear the evening air. Klaus Heinrich 
clapped his heels together as he answered, No, Albrecht, you mustn't think of it. I'll drive to the Schloss with you if you like. I am, of course, at your disposal. This was the prelude to a remarkable conversation between the young princes, the upshot of which was published a few days later in the advertiser and received with general approval. The prince accompanied the Grand Duke to the Schloss through the Albrechtstor, up the broad stone steps, through corridors where naked gas lamps were burning, and silent anterooms between lackeys into Albrecht's closet, where old Prahl had lighted the two bronze oil lamps on the mantelpiece. Albrecht had taken over his father's workroom. It had always been the workroom of the reigning sovereigns, and lay on the first floor between an aide-de-camp's room and the dining-room in daily use facing the Albrechtsplatz, which the princes had always overlooked and watched from their writing-table. It was an exceptionally unhomely and repellent room, small, with cracked ceiling paintings, red silk and gold-bordered carpet, and three windows reaching to the ground, through which the draught blew keenly, and before which the claret-colored curtains with their elaborate fringes were drawn. It had a false chimney-piece in French empire taste, in front of which a semicircle of little modern quilted plush chairs without arms were arranged, and a hideously decorated white stove, which gave out a great heat. Two big quilted sofas stood opposite each other by the walls, and in front of one stood a square book-table with a red plush cover. Between the windows, two narrow gold-framed mirrors with marble ledges reached up to the ceiling, the right-hand one of which bore a fairly cheerful alabaster group, the other a water-bottle and medicine-glasses. The writing-desk, an old piece made of rosewood with a roll-top and metal clasps, stood clear in the middle of the room on the red carpet. An antique stared down with its dead eyes from a pedestal in one corner of the room. "'What I have to suggest to you,' said Albrecht, he was standing at the writing-table, unconsciously toying with a paper-knife, a silly thing like a cavalry saber with a grotesque handle, is directly connected with our conversation this afternoon. I may begin by saying that I discussed the matter thoroughly with Knobelsdorf this summer at Hollerbrunn. He agrees, and if you do too, as I don't doubt you will, I can carry out my intention at once. "'Please, let's hear it, Albrecht,' said Klaus Heinrich, who was standing at attention in a military attitude by the sofa-table. "'My health,' continued the Grand Duke, "'has been getting worse and worse lately.' "'I'm very sorry, Albrecht. Hollerbrunn didn't agree with you, then?' "'Thanks. No. I'm in a bad way. And my health is showing itself increasingly unequal to the demands made upon it. When I say demands, I mean chiefly the duties of a ceremonial and representative nature, which are inseparable from my position, and that's the bond of connection with the conversation we had just now at Ditlindus. The performance of these duties may be a happiness when a contact with the people, a relationship, a beating of hearts in unison exists. To me it is a torture, and the falseness of my role wearies me to such a degree that I must consider what measures I can take to counteract it. In this, 
so far as the bodily part of me is concerned, I am at one with my doctors, who entirely agree with my proposal. So listen to me. I'm unmarried. I have no idea, I can assure you, of ever marrying. I shall have no children. You are heir to the throne by right of birth. You are still more so in the consciousness of the people who love you. There you are, Albrecht, always talking about my being beloved. I simply don't believe it. At a distance, perhaps, that's the way with us. It's always at a distance that we are beloved. You're too modest. Wait a bit. You've already been kind enough to relieve me of some of my representative duties now and then. I should like you to relieve me of all of them, absolutely, for always. You're not thinking of abdicating, Albrecht? asked Klaus Heinrich, aghast. I daren't think of it. Believe me, I gladly would, but I shouldn't be allowed to. What I'm thinking of is not a regency, but only a substitution. Perhaps you have some recollection of the distinction in public law from your student's day. A permanent and officially established substitution in all representative functions, warranted by the need of indulgence required by my state of health. What is your opinion? I met your orders, Albrecht, but I'm not quite clear yet. How far does the substitution extend? Oh, as far as possible. I should like it to extend to all occasions on which a personal appearance in public is expected of me. Knobelsdorf stipulates that I should only devolve the opening and closure of Parliament on you when I'm bedridden, only now and again. Let's grant that. But otherwise you would be my substitute on all ceremonial occasions, on journeys, visits to cities, opening of public festivities, opening of the Citizens' Ball. That, too? Why not? We have also the weekly free audiences here. A sensible custom, without a doubt, but it tires me out. You would hold the audiences in my place. I needn't go on. Do you accept my proposal? I am at your orders. Then listen to me while I finish. For every occasion on which you act as my representative, I lend you my aides to camp. It is further necessary that your military promotion should be hastened. Are you a first lieutenant? You'll be made a captain or a major straight away a la suite of your regiment. I'll see to that. But in the third place, I wish duly to emphasize our arrangement, to make your position at my side properly clear by lending you the title of Royal Highness. There were some formalities to attend to. Knobelsdorf has already seen to them. I'm going to express my intentions in the form of two missives to you and to my Minister of State. Knobelsdorf has already drafted them. Do you accept? What am I to say, Albrecht? You are father's eldest son, and I've always looked up to you, because I've always felt and known that you are the superior and higher of us two, and that I am only a plebeian compared with you. But if you think me worthy to stand at your side and to bear your title and to represent you before the people, although I don't think myself anything like so presentable— and have this deformity here, with my left hand, which I've always got to keep covered, then I thank you, and put myself at your orders. Then I'll ask you to leave me now, please. I want to rest. They advanced towards each other, the one from the writing-table, the other from the book-table, over the carpet into the middle of the room. The Grand Duke extended his hand to his brother, his thin, cold hand, which he stretched out from his chest, without moving his forearm away from his body. 
Klaus Heinrich clapped his heels together and bowed as he took the hand, and Albrecht nodded his narrow head with its fair beard as a token of dismissal, while he sucked his short, rounded lower lip against the upper. Klaus Heinrich went back to the Schloss Hermitage. Both the advertiser and the courier published eight days later the two missives, which contained decisions of the highest importance, the one addressed to my dear Minister of State, Baron von Knobelsdorff, and the other beginning with Most Serene Highness and Well-Beloved Brother, and signed Your Royal Highness's Most Devoted Brother, Albrecht. End of section 10